go to Badan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take your take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your so of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padamaran to Leban, the son of Bethuel, the Armenian or Armene, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalah, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboah. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood on it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, which is spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you, your offspring shall all the fam your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke, and from his sleep, and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Lutz at the, at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me the bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come so that I come again to my father's house in peace then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and all that you give me I will give a full tenth a tenth the full tenth to you. All right. Thanks to Alan. He's been, the last couple of weeks, he's been kind enough to take on 
some of those names and so on that when we first see them, we're not quite sure how to say them. But, so Isaac, this, this starts out with Isaac sending for Jacob. Rachel, I'm sorry, Rebecca has said to him, life's not worth living if we wind up with another Canaanite daughter-in-law. And so Isaac sends Jacob for Jacob. He blesses him. Uh, he, it says he charged him and blessed him and said to him, go get a wife from Canaan. Or not from Canaan. Go get a, you shall not take a wife from Canaan. And in verse 2 he says, go and to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So Padan Aram is... Uh, what's listed here is where he's going uh, and that's the direction that Isaac gives him Bethuel so how is Bethuel related to Abraham oh I gave you a twist there didn't I do you remember where we first meet Laban that is where Abraham sends the servant to go get a wife for Isaac and he sends him back to his father's people to Abraham's father's people and it's the house of Bethuel that this servant goes to so that makes Bethuel related to Abraham how do you remember now Bethuel is Abraham's brother right and so uh, out of out of Bethuel, I'm sorry, Abraham's nephew. Now I've got it wrong. One of those is right and one is wrong. Which is it? Help me out. What's that? So Bethuel, boy, I had that in my head so clearly that I wrote it down, and now I'm questioning what I wrote down out of my memory instead of looking it up. Um, it's Rebecca's dad. That's absolutely correct. And it's in the house of, of Abraham's family. We'll just stop there. But uh, so we're, we're going back to the same source for a wife, for same basic source, because a wife for Isaac is going to be where Isaac sends uh, Jacob to find his own wife. And so that's where he's to go. And he's going to go to Laban, which is uh, his mother's brother. And so in verse 3, we see uh, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac calling out, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. He goes on, May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to, your, to you and your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. So clearly, Isaac is looking now to Jacob, saying, the blessings that came to Abraham, the blessings that came to Isaac as the descendant, the child of the promise with Abraham, he's clearly looking to those that they would be passed on and given uh, by God as the blessings to Jacob. And when he says, may God Almighty, that's the El Shaddai is how we typically see it in English, and that really means the God most powerful. Uh, multiply you and he wants you to become a company of people an assembly a multitude an organized body men nation those words all fit in there and so the father of a great nation and also in that blessing he's saying as it was told to Abraham and then to Isaac 
to you and to your descendants that you can possess this land and this area in which you sojourn. And what else might we add? If we were thinking of the blessings of Abraham, is there anything else we would add to what is being said here over Jacob? This is a pretty comprehensive blessing that Isaac is sending down toward Abraham, or toward Jacob, that mirrors what was given to Abraham. And so in verse 5, Isaac is sent away, and indeed he goes to Pad Aram, headed to Laban, the son of Bethuel. He was an Armenian, Rebekah's brother, and the uncle of Jacob and Esau. So we get that that's what he's doing. We're going to get more details about that trip coming up in a minute. But in verse 6, we almost get the meanwhile back at the farm kind of a thing. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him off to get a wife from the home area. And he noticed the instruction. He took note of it that no Canaanite wife. Uh, and he recognized that the Canaanite women were not pleasing to his family, to Rebekah and to Isaac. And so in verse 8, he saw that that displeased them. In verse 9, what does Esau do? Yeah, he, he, he tries to fix it. It starts out with so, which means as a result. So that's what was motivating Esau to go to Ishmael and found a daughter of Ishmael to take as a wife. And clearly the motivation here is to be more pleasing to his parents in selection of a spouse. I'm not sure adding a third wife was going to be very helpful. We don't get many words about it, but it says that she's the sister of Nebaioth, which we could look back at Genesis 25:13 and see that that was Ishmael's firstborn that was listed there. So it's one of Ishmael's children. And so um, here's, what, what do you think Ishmael, oh, Ishmael what do you think um, Esau was trying to accomplish here? Yeah, let's, let's see if I can get, he's com being competitive with Jacob a little bit here. He didn't get the instructions, but he, on his own, he's trying to go out and see if he can please his parents more. And we don't really get any word here as to whether that is particularly helpful or not. I think what he might be failing to recognize is that still when he comes around, he's still got these two Canaanite wives. Now he's got three women trailing him. Uh, that's probably not a recipe for uh, somebody to think you were wise in your thinking or obedient in your actions. But at any rate, Esau is trying to get back in better graces. And that takes us up to verse 10 where we start looking at the details of Jacob's trip as he's headed off toward uh, the land of his heritage. And it says he departed from Beersheba, that's because that's where the family was living, and went toward Haran. And he comes to a certain place. It's turned night, and the sun's down, and he's ready to, to sleep. By all accounts, he's traveling alone. We don't see anything else uh, other than that here. And so he finds a stone to rest his head on, 
and he goes to sleep. And it's one of the things you see in the scriptures a little bit is people finding a stone when traveling to rest their head on. I don't get that. Uh, sometimes I feel like I'm sleeping like I've got a stone under my head, but apparently he's able to get comfortable and he has a dream in verse 12. And in this dream, he sees a ladder. Where does the ladder start and where does it end? Earth to heaven. And so here's this ladder, um, and it's, it's, it reaches from earth to heaven, and he sees on this ladder angels of a God, angels of God, both ascending and descending. And that word angel, we need to remind ourselves, that can, that can be like we think of angels, visitors from heaven, like the ones that showed up for Mary when she was in, her pregnancy was announced. Uh, could be messengers, could be ambassadors, but clearly people doing God's work. And who is standing above the ladder? The Lord. That is Yahweh or Jehovah. And he says, he speaks and says, I am the Lord, Jehovah, the God of your father Abraham. The God there is Elohim, the mighty one, the judging God and the God of Isaac. So he identifies himself as being in the family lineage, as functioning as the God that they've been following. And uh, he says to him, this land you are lying on, I'm going to give it to you and to your descendants. He also goes on to say, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. They're going to be spread out west, east, north, and south. And in your descendants, all of the earth shall be blessed. That's the one item that Isaac hadn't mentioned um, as clearly uh, in his blessing to Jacob as he sent him out. But here is Jehovah God announcing through this dream that you, Jacob, are getting the promises revoiced to him that came to Abraham and Isaac and now to him. And verse 15, he says, Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to you. Now, um, we're going to come back and talk about some of this in a minute. But Jacob wakes up. And when Jacob wakes up, what does he say? Surely the Lord is here, and I did not know it. So as Jacob's looking at the dream, how do you think he's taking this dream? Literally. Literally, this is reality. He is seeing the reality of God, showing him a ladder between heaven and earth, and God's angels going up and down on this ladder, and God voicing to him the blessings that he intends for him personally. So what do you think God was trying to communicate with this dream? He's promising a promise of being given to Jacob, to Isaac, and that he would be his 
Okay, so we're, we're seeing all that. What do, you, what do you make of this ladder with the angels ascending and descending? That these created beings do God's bidding. Okay. And we don't see it. And we don't see it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jacob is being allowed to see that God is taking care of the events on earth that he is sending his messengers down and they're coming back and there's interaction back and forth between heaven and earth at God's direction with these people, do, these people, these angels, these messengers, these ambassadors doing God's will. And so Jacob not only gets to hear the words, but he gets to see that there is symbolically certainly, but action behind those words that God is directing that this is occurring up and down from heaven down and from earth up. Did you have something to say? No. Okay. All right. And so um, then when Jacob wakes up, um, he says, certainly the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. What's this, I did not know it? Surely God was here, and I didn't know it. What's Jacob saying here? Unless he's truly a believer. That's an interesting, relates to what I think is really happening here and what he's saying. Up to this point, with the details we've been given about the story, what does it appear that Jacob... What, what is the, the basis upon which the, he has chosen the actions that he's taken? Direction of his father. Well, direction of his father, direction of his mother. I mean, when you look at it, um, you know, he's, he's taking a very cause and effect, earth-based direction. Mom overhears, we hatch a plan. We work our plan. Our plan works, or at least appears to, and it does. And, you know, he, he's looking at this very one-dimensionally. He's looking at it as an earthbound dimension. And all of a sudden, here he is. He's on his way. He has this dream, and he gets a perspective that goes beyond just a man living his life on earth for his best interests on earth. There's a God. This is a magnificent God. This is a powerful God. This is a God that blessed Abraham and Isaac in the lineage that I'm in, and it's because of his blessing that we were living in Beersheba with great success. That's what God told Isaac was, I'm going to make a place for you, and, and he just multiplied over and over and over again everything that was happening toward his benefit. And so the greatness of being the son of Isaac didn't come from Isaac being great, it came from God being great. And all of a sudden, Jacob stops and he gets a whole different perspective. It isn't, this isn't just men at work. This is God at work. And prior to this, this isn't how he says it, but prior to this, I didn't even get it. I didn't even realize what God was doing. And so here he is saying, 
The events that I'm seeing happen on earth are not just men doing things. There is a sovereign God at work here, and I am just now becoming aware of it. What was the first reaction he said? Beside the words that he said, what was his first reaction that you see there in verse 17? Is that the right place for him to be, is afraid? Yeah, I'd say so. Scriptures say the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. He realizes that he is small potatoes in this little game that's going on. Little game in this set of world events that are foundational to God blessing the world through Christ. Now, he can't see all of that coming, but that's what's happening here. And so he's afraid. He realizes this is big. This is beyond what I can take in. In verse 17, he said, This place is awesome. This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. So he puts a lot of significance on that particular place because at this place, he's had an experience that showed him who God was and how he's interacting in the world. And he also heard all of these promises from God in the dream about what he was going to do. And so he said, this, this is where God is found by me. And so in verse 16, he says, Early in the morning he took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on its top. And not only did he erect this monument, but he called the name of that place Bethel. Do you know what Bethel means? house of God and he uh, the previously it had been called Luz and Jacob then makes this vow if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety then the Lord will be my God this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and all of what you give me I will give a tenth to you What's happening here is not uncommon. We saw it with uh, Abraham. He would go places and things would happen, and he would build an altar there and call on the name of the Lord. And he would name wells and name locations based on those things he saw God doing. And so this is a, a, a way that people would commemorate big events in life. And so when he erects this stone, pours oil on it, he's, he's creating... It's like when Abraham created an altar. He's creating a memorial of what happened here. And um, he renames the place, which is also typically a part of that. And then Jacob makes this vow before God. If you do what you promised, then certainly you will be my God, and I will give a tenth to you. And we see Abraham did that after the battle, didn't he? When he went out and... Uh, uh, met the king of Salem, Melchizedek, uh, both king and uh, priest of Salem, uh, to honor God because Melchizedek was his representative. He gave a tenth of what he had gained there. And so this giving a tenth while the tithe does not yet exist was still a common way to show allegiance to God. And so all of these things are happening now, we might say, well, is this really the house of God? 
we, we might look at some of this and say, he might still be thinking a little more on the small side than what God's going to reveal throughout the rest of his scriptures. But for where Jacob is, this is the beginning of him working to live a life ordered by God himself and being subjective to him, and we ought to honor that and see that as an honoring thing. Um, went through that a little more quickly than I had planned, but I've got some other verses we need to take a look at. And this ladder out of heaven, uh, we probably need to go back and think about that for ourselves a bit. Go over to John chapter 1. And I want to read verses 43 through 51, if I could get a volunteer to do that. John 1, 43 through 51. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip and Jesus and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, or Nathanael, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, All right, so this is Jesus out calling his disciples, right? And he found Philip and said, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, which is up in Galilee. It's where Jesus is planning on going. That's where Andrew and Peter both live. So Philip went out and found Nathanael, and he said to him, we found him who Moses of the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What did that phrase mean? We found him that Moses wrote about. What are they talking about? Messiah. Messiah. We found Messiah, which the Jews have been waiting for for eons, for centuries. And Nathaniel has a quick response. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Was Nazareth, uh, the people of Nazareth, were they regarded in high regard? No, that was a backward laboring city of no real consequence and people of no real consequence. You could pick whatever ethnic group you wanted to and think about the jokes that have been made about them. That's the role that, that uh, Nazareth was playing. And so he makes this mocking comment, and can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, Philip has a quick answer for him. What's his answer? Yeah, check this out for yourself. You want to call me an idiot because I'm telling you we found Messiah and he's from Nazareth. Will you come and see? Well, Jesus saw him coming from a distance and said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And, of course, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? He said, I saw you under the fig tree. 
And Nathaniel has a response to that. What is his response? <coughs> You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. You are Him. I, I was wrong. And why did Nathaniel believe instantly? Yeah, well, Jesus allowed it, but here's a miracle. You know, they weren't where Jesus could see him under the tree, physically close enough. So this is this is beyond the natural. It's supernatural. It's a miracle. And so he believes because it's been demonstrated to him that this is a man who can do the supernatural. And Jesus said, you're going to see greater things than these. You will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what did Jesus just tell him he was going to see? What's that? Jacob's ladder. He's going to see something similar to that. But the ladder's not the ladder, is it? What are the angels ascending and descending on? Who is? Jesus, Jesus himself. Um, to kind of help you see how I'm taking this, go over to Hebrews chapter 1 i got to see the right verses here. It's right at the beginning. If I can even find Hebrews with one hand. Getting closer. Went past it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. And we want to look at the first... Oh... Um, First, oh, four verses. The first three are the main ones, but we'll read one through four. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of glory, he is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact Okay, there's a lot of scriptures we could go to to get some of these thoughts, but let's talk about this one for a minute. How did God originally speak to the people of the world? What's that? Through the prophets. Through prophets in many different ways. Many different portions, the New American Standard says. But in these last days, how has he spoken? And how do we, how is his son described? Yes, heir of all things, creator, the exact representation of God. And uh, there in the last, or in part of verse 3, it says, upholds all things by the word of his power. And it goes on to talk about after he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, much better than the angels as he had become, and he inherited a more excellent name than they. So when we see... Jacob, in his dream, we see God showing that he is sending his ambassadors 
to the earth to do his work, and his ambassadors are returning back and forth to him, and there's this constant interaction between God and earth, the world, the people of the world, as God sends his ambassadors back and forth and sees that his will is done. And when we get to the New Testament, we see that that happens through the person of Jesus Christ. We, he spoke in days before through prophets. He certainly did his miraculous work. And the other thing that is mentioned here in Hebrews, and by the way, this Christ also was creator. Because it was through him that he made the world. And I think we can superimpose that on top of what we see going on in Jacob's dream and see that the real method that God does his work interacts with this world is through the person of Jesus Christ. And it reached fullness and openness in the era of Jesus coming. Christmas is coming, right? Here he came incarnate to earth, lived a life as a man, paid this price, and we can see then that the plan for Jesus Christ from before the foundations of the world was that he would come and be the one to see that the will of God was done on earth. And so Jacob, in a small way, more so in the New Testament, we see that this conduit between man and God is Christ himself. Over in Timothy, he'd say there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And so that fits in over on top of what we see with Jacob. And when we get this picture with some level of clarity, like Jacob, we too should probably have some fear. But we probably should also have another thought. And it's the thought Jacob had. Surely God was in this place. And I did not know it. Uh, when we look at the scriptures, we see that God's work is done. God works in mankind. Um, for a moment, let's go over to Romans 9, 10 through 13. We've talked about this before, but let's remind ourselves of this. Jacob has a reaction to God from this dream. He's afraid. He proclaims things. He puts up a monument. He makes an oath, a pledge, uh, and he promises that if God does the things he said he would do, that he would honor him with the gift of a tenth. But let's remind ourselves of Romans 9, 10 through 13. What do those verses say? And not only so, but also when Rebecca had children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I think that's important to lay on top of what we see happening in Jacob's dream. Jacob wasn't there because he had earned that spot. We even talked a little bit about that last week, that here's this deceiver 
that apparently received the great blessing of God through the course of a deception. So was God honoring the deception? Absolutely not. What we see God doing is what we see here in Romans 9. For that his purposes would be fulfilled, he selected Jacob over Esau. That's still occurring when we get to the dream. Did God give Jacob this dream so that Jacob would make the right responses? No. It's good, the responses that Jacob made. God gave Jacob the dream. God showed himself to Jacob in this way to establish himself as Jehovah, the God Almighty, leading Jacob through his life. We could say the same thing about ourselves. Did we become believers because we had some brilliant moment where we saw and recognized and figured out who God was? No, not that we chose him, but that he chose us. And I want to build on that just a little bit. Let's look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Yeah, and it continues. Um, so when we look at those verses, we could stop and apply this to Jacob as well, couldn't we? When did God choose Jacob over Esau? Before they were born. Before they were born. We could probably say with, I think, correctness here, before the foundation of the world. Before creation, Jacob's role was selected and given to him. <clears throat> and anything good Jacob does, does he get to take credit for it? No, it's because of God's selection of him and the way that God leads him through life. And so God chose him as just as he chose us if we're believers in Christ. This isn't something we can take pride in. It's something we can give thanks for. And to some expect, just as Jacob's moment here, this is when he realizes who God is. It isn't that Jacob stopped and figured out one day, God must be leading me around. Jacob was given a dream where God revealed himself to him in a very special way, a way beyond, far beyond what any of us probably have experienced. But nonetheless, this is the moment when Jacob said, I'm a follower of the God Most High, not just because my dad said I would be, but because I am, because God has revealed himself to me. And we're in that same boat. We ought to be as awed and as afraid and as moved as Jacob was to create a monument when we think about our own moment of salvation. We ought to be saying to ourselves, and probably did to some extent, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it till now. And then as we think about what else is going on in our lives, let's go over to Philippians 2, 12 and 13.
Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Who's got that one for us? So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's a, that's a series of verses that has things in it that you could almost say were in conflict. Paul is approving, encouraging them, reinforcing their obedience. You obeyed when I was there, now you're continuing it when I'm gone. That's great. And continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. doesn't mean make yourself saved. It means that salvation that you've received, live it out in fullness, in obedience, following Christ. What did the Great Commission say? Making disciples, people that were learning, teaching them to obey all I've commanded to you. So learning and out of that learning comes obedience and people are intentional about it. And Paul's saying, stay with it with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Because salvation is that significant. When we realize that God saved us, like Jacob, we should have a certain awe fear that goes with that I don't want to mess this up this is this is eternity this is fantastic this is beyond anything I could ever attain through any earthly endeavor but then he goes on to say for it's God who's at work in you but well, wait a minute you just told me to work this out yes but recognize you're not doing this out of your effort it's God working in you both for his good pleasure and for his will. And so as we're living our lives, was God, we ought to think about it this way, was God at work in Jacob's life before he had the dream? Absolutely. He was even declared, the younger will be the master over the older. It was declared before he was born. Was God at work in your life before you were saved? He led you right up to that salvation moment, didn't he? Is God at work after you are saved? Yes. And so we ought not need a dream or a ladder to recognize God is extremely active in my life, in the lives of the people, and even in charting the history of this planet and everything that's going on with it. I want you to go to 2 Kings 6. 2 Kings 6, verses 15 through 17. There was a troublesome king in the life of Israel at this point. He was the king of Iram. And he had been coming against Israel unsuccessfully. And he's getting frustrated. And he's asked somebody, where is that Israelite king? And they go, well, really, the king's not your problem. The, your problem's Elisha. Elisha continues 
to tell the king where you're headed. And so the king's always waiting on you or, or escapes from you, however you want to look at it. So he says, all right, fine. Let's go find Elisha. Elisha happens to be at Dothan. And the king of Aram marches against Elisha at Dothan. Let's read these few verses. 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So the man of God is Elisha in this. And his servant goes out and looks in the morning and goes, Oh, my goodness. It was like a Cowboys and Indians show. We're surrounded. And he was very scared. And so he goes to Elisha to warn him or tell him or whatever. And Elisha says, don't worry about it. There's more of us than there are them. And are more with us than are with them. And he prays and says, God, let him see. And the servant is allowed to see what God is doing to protect his servant Elisha. And it's a kind of a fun story to continue with. Elisha prays to God and they blind these men and he marches them off and they become captives of Israel um, and then they're sent home. But, um, and that's the last time Aram messed with Israel, uh, the king of Aram. And, uh, but what we see here is that Elisha's aware of this, but the servant's not. And there's a massive protective army around Elisha preparing to see that God's plans and purposes are met we live our lives too often too oblivious to what God is really doing we, we become concerned certainly there are events that transpire that are heartbreaking and there are all kinds of things that create uncertainties for us. And those uncertainties are real. God doesn't choose to show us the path he's going to go down. Even in his promises to Abraham, did I, Abraham clearly understand how all that was going to come together? He got some bits and pieces. He was told they're going to be slaves in Egypt. But he didn't get the whole story laid out for him as far as we can tell. He had some inklings, but he went through some difficult situations. Jacob went through, is going to go through some difficult situations, has already taken himself through some. But we need to live our lives realizing that there are not things happening in this world that God is not in control of or able to make sure that his purposes indeed are completed. We live a hard life sometimes. You know where that hard life comes from? It comes from our sin. It started with Adam. We inherited that. Prior to sin entering the world through our four 
parents, Adam and Eve, uh, everything was good. It was very good. But sin entered the world, and we're, we should be, I'm not going to say thankful, but we ought to be rec quick to recognize this one fact. It kind of takes us off the hot seat that Adam gave that as an inheritance to us so we didn't have to be the first one to do it because we would have, each and every one of us would have. I'm convinced of that. I don't know that I can find a scripture to tell you that, but nonetheless, we're sinful and we suffer and there's a curse from sin. And we're gonna live under that curse in this life. And that's just the way it is. But at the same time, in the midst of that curse, God's purposes are fulfilled. And if you are a faith follower of Jesus Christ, trusting in what he did on the cross, what you have is beyond measure. Let your way of life be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. That is of more value than any earthly thing you could acquire. And we need to recognize that, but we need to also recognize that God is not passive. He's not sitting around waiting to see how the story comes out. God is at work in your life and mine. And we can't see it. We're like the servant. Maybe we do see it a lot, but there's much we don't see. And in the midst of the big crises, that's the easiest time to not realize God's working here too. And he is trustworthy and he's active. And we need to stop and say, surely God is in this place. Over and over and over again as we leave our lives. Comments, questions, thoughts? All right, well, let me close with a word of prayer. Father, our ability to perceive you is limited. I remember when you came back to Thomas, you said you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those that believe and have not seen. Well, Lord, we've seen a lot, but there's a lot we haven't seen. We thank you for leading us into truth. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. Uh, we thank you for your providential love that takes us through this life despite the challenges and the trials. Lord, teach us to consider all of those trials joyful, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance and that endurance will have its perfect and complete work in our lives, that we will be lacking in nothing. Lord, you are the everything, and this world is the nothing. Lord, let us really focus on you, trust you, live our lives in careful obedience to you, seeking you at every turn, for you truly are in this place. Thank you for the Christ, Jesus himself, by whom you have created this world and continue to sustain it. You see that your purposes are met. And Lord, we so much look forward to the new heaven and the new earth that will be established after the suffering time in this one is over. It's in Jesus' name we pray.